there's something to be said for hustling, right? Getting out there and putting yourself in a position to make it happen. It's not like you're in the spot where it happens. You have to be running around and be in the right place to get to that spot. Hello, and welcome to Here in LA, Franklin Hills edition. Today, we chat with Phil Stark. Phil is a writer, a producer, and a creator of a film that you've heard of. He started off on South Park in the early days, moved over to launch that 70s show, and got high one day with his buddy, and when they went outside to go home, his pal said, dude, where's my car? So Phil went home and wrote the script, and the movie was made. Now, this podcast tries so hard to stay away from the film and TV industry because the myth of L.A. is that everybody who lives here works in that industry. But Phil's story is just so interesting, especially how all of this led to him becoming a therapist that we feel so lucky to share his story with you today. So let's all welcome Phil Stark. Hey, everybody. I am here in Franklin Hills, sort of, with Phil Stark. Hey! Hello, hello. Nice to be here. Sound effects. Phil is a therapist who also wrote Dude, Where's My Car? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's very specific. (laughs) So we're going to get to the therapy in a sec, but... We got to talk about this because that is the lead, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, here we are sitting here in the middle of uh, July, and there's a writer strike and an actor strike. There might be a trucker strike soon. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. So even though this podcast isn't really supposed to be about, well, I'll, I'll put it this way: I steered away from the the, the movie business um, because I don't. I, I I'm trying to dispel the idea that everybody in LA is in the movie business. Mm-hmm. But you actually were, and you left. So mm-hmm. that's one thing that makes you truly unique in this city. Um, so if you don't mind, I, I've got some some movie and TV questions for you. Absolutely. Okay. On your Wikipedia, uh-huh. it says that you were the script supervisor for that 70s show. <laughs> is that true? Uh, not script supervisor. I guess that's the problem with the Wikipedia is the information is uh, usually partially reliable. Uh, I worked on... That 70s show, I, I started as a staff writer and I ended as a co-executive producer, um, which just means essentially I was a writer-producer the whole time. Uh-huh. A script supervisor is a, is a different job. It's a production job where you're assisting the director and tracking the dialogue and the pages and stuff. And they often work in coordination with the writers. So the nameless person out there who added that to my Wikipedia 15 years ago was mistaken. Okay. Uh, and thank you for clearing that up. Yes. Uh, okay, so I've got so many questions about the writer's room. Oh, yeah. As a marijuana enthusiast, I was under the impression that the writer's room, especially for that 70s show, would be just this pot-smoked-filled room with pizza boxes and Mm -hmm. video games and, Mm -hmm. like, Playboy magazines opened up and you're just BSing for, like, eight hours and then... Mm -hmm. At two in the morning, somebody's like, we have we have to write one page. <laughs> we write one page and go to bed. Is that how it is? Well, there there weren't there was no uh, clouds of marijuana smoke in that writer's room. No. Um uh you know, so ind- individually writers might go home and have pizza boxes and clouds of marijuana smoke and then we stay up till two in the morning and then be like, I have to write something. That could happen. Uh-huh. But the writer's room, especially that 70s show, uh uh was pretty clean in terms of uh, sobriety hmm. in general. 
uh, but pretty wild in terms of uh, uh, what you might talk about, especially compared to nowadays, where there's a lot more sensitivity. Um, not that it's a bad thing, but it's certainly different than when I was starting out. PC sensibilities. Um, uh, yeah, well, to a certain extent. I mean, when I was in that room in the 70s room, uh, all the people who, I mean, I was, it was my first job. Uh, oh, my, really? Essentially my first. I, I had come over from South Park, which oh. was one of the main reasons that I got the job. In the now, first come place. on. South Park's got pot smoke in that place. South Park, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. South Park, we had a writer's retreat where a lot of it took place in a house in Aspen in a hot tub, right? Where it, 70s show, wow, I have an office? Oh, my God. The PA is showing me where the, uh, the room is. Here's where I sit. It was much a little more formal. Mm. Um, but the writer's room at that time was supposed to be a place where nothing is sacred, anything goes, um, and that led to the freedom for people to say horrible, mean things with the idea that eventually, hopefully, would come back around to a joke that would service the script in a good way. Right. Um, however, I and other people in that room at the time, uh, many people had a hard time dealing with it because it was hard. People were mean to each other. This and, is We're talking 70s show, right? 70s show, yeah. The writers were mean to each other because you had license to just say whatever? Yeah, I mean, like, you might bag on someone because their idea wasn't good mm. in, in an honest way or a mean way. Mm. Uh, you might make a joke that, especially with uh, women writers, had to put up with so much shit in that room. Oh. Because if there was a joke about prostitution or sex or boobs, you were expected, as a woman, I think, to just laugh it off, to go with it. Um, where nowadays, it's much easier and maybe appropriate to say that's inappropriate huh i don't i don't like that joke that makes me feel bad that's mean hmm. so um I, I do feel like a little bit of a dinosaur not because of my point of view but because of just seeing how much things have changed well you know i'd be torn in that that space then because on one hand i'm obviously i'm a feminist and hmm. love people and i want them to feel safe hmm. but in a creative world i feel like you should be allowed to be obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the right? other thing also, you should, in any environment, you should be allowed to give straight feedback without emotion in a way that might be tough and intended to make people better. And, and to that point, I would also not denigrate somebody for a bad idea. Right. Because that also stifles the creativity. Right. Again, I went to college at the College of Creative Studies at UC Santa Barbara, so I'm hyperly sensitive to creativity because I know how fleeting it can be, for me at least. Mm -hmm. Some people, no problem. How about for you? Um, the, the finding creativity in, in the room? Just in general, like when you sit down to, and you wanna write, oh. is it always there for you? Oh, well, uh, yes, but uh, it changes as far as what the outlet is. Like, I can't imagine sitting down and writing a pilot script right now. That's the last thing I wanna do. When mm -hmm. I was starting out, I'd write fucking three features a year, just bang them out. Um, now, uh, the last thing I want to do is think of a, a plot story. Uh, so, you know, I write things like uh, my book, articles about therapy, uh, my take on the, the business in terms of uh, approaching from a talk therapy uh, uh, point of view. I mean, these are things that get me juiced up. So what I found is I love being creative. I love creating. I love writing. But I know that if I'm sitting there at the computer or even better, away from the computer, loathing being at the computer, it's because the thing I'm trying to create is probably not what I'm interested in or really should be doing. Exactly. And I think that that's what leads to people having writer's block. Mm -hmm. They're writing about something that their heart isn't into, mm -hmm. um, that appears to be work as opposed to uh, a creative, loving mm -hmm. outlet. Mm -hmm. And it's a, just a drag. Yeah, in fact, uh, 
I, I was talking about this with a client, and this is going to be a chapter in my second book. It's called Creative Crop Rotation. And it's the idea that, like, you know, you might be a writer, so you sit and write. And, but uh, if you only write and write screenplays and screenplays, the, the uh, soil will get fallow. Yes. And you'll be growing the same thing over and over. So it's important to rotate. And you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a short story. I'm going to write an article. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to write in my journal. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to go out and uh, pot. I'm going to do smoke pot or put plants in a pot, whichever. Um, And by doing that, we keep all the creativity fresh, Mm -hmm. right? And then by the time you come back to write your screenplay again, not only are you into it and excited about it, but the soil is fertile and ready because it hasn't been used for that purpose. I love it. It sounds like my buddy Jason Ross, who was on one of our earlier episodes, who wrote on The Daily Show for years and years and years. And... um, and then in New York, and then came to California to write something different. Mm-hmm. Ended up writing a, a middle school fictional s- story. I mean, the polar opposite of The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like he's following what you believe all of us should be doing. Maybe. Uh, I think uh, there's a tendency, especially when you write things, to verbalize or put into words things that make so sense to you and are crystallized from your experience. But reality is they're very shared and human. And it's nice for other people to say, oh, I recognize that. I've been through that, as opposed to, hey, that guy didn't think of that. You're right. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's. Uh, I I'm blown away that Daily Show or um, that uh, '70s Show was your first gig. How'd you get the break? Well, um, my first big break was on South Park. I'm sorry, South Park. Right. Th- that's even harder, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I got really lucky, uh, and this is what I tell people starting off in the industry: is a combination of talent, hard work, and luck, with a sprinkling of chutzpah. So uh, I moved out to L.A. from Texas. I, I was writing, you know, four features a year. Uh, also trying to get some com- write some comedies. Um, I was lucky that my good friend Jennifer Howell was a, uh, ended up being the assistant to Matt and Trey on a movie called Orgasmo. Of course. That she invited me to be a PA on, and then she invited me to be a PA on the pilot of South Park. How old were you for Orgasmo? 25. 3, 24, 23? Is, is that older than most PAs, or is that right in the, the sweet spot? Sweet spot. Because it's right after college, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. This is sweet spot PA action. And, okay, now we're going to talk about money a little bit in this episode. Yeah. What does a PA at 23-year-old, a 23-year-old PA back then, what were you pulling in? Oh, my God. I can't remember a number, but, and this speaks to how old I am, but uh, <laughs> this was like 1997, uh-huh. so I could afford to live in a single bachelor apartment yep and i couldn't i know i couldn't afford to get my air conditioning fixed in my car <laughs> so you, maybe you were paying like 500 600 bucks a month yeah that sounds right yeah and i don't remember what the pay was but it it, it was enough that i could get by and that is more about it's less about the pay and more about my limited expenses mm. you know I, I remember i was smoking cigarettes at the time and i was smoking drum and I didn't need to buy more cigarettes. I would just save all my roaches and then take them back out and roll them out and smoke them again. I mean, like, you Did do what you got to do. you smoke drums because they were cheaper or because it was fun to roll your own? I think a combination of both. Mm. But um, I wasn't rolling in cigarettes. I'll put it like that. <laughs> uh, do PAs get free food on the set? Yeah. Does South Park have a set? At the time, the South Park offices were in Westwood in a building that used to be a sperm collection bank, which is cool because they had these reclining tables that people would sit on. But these are shaped weird. This is weird. They had humps in them and stuff. Um, Where in Westwood? 
uh, right in the heart of it. In the uh, village? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, and when I started there, the show had not premiered. Mm-hmm. And it was just a bunch of computers, animators, drawer, uh, illustrators. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd go out for lunch. And after the show premiered, we'd go out for lunch wearing, like, you know, the merch. We'd have merch. <laughs> and we'd come back and we'd turn around and, like, all these college kids are just following us. Oh. Because, the, the, like, I think the month that premiered, it went from zero to cover of time in Newsweek. This is the first season? Yeah. You were working there for the first season? Yeah. You were at ground zero. Before of- the first season. I think that's amazing. It was it was amazing. So uh, hard work, writing a lot. Luck mm-hmm. had my friend in there. Yep. Talent, they liked my script. I mean, when my friend Jennifer told Matt and Trey that I wanted to be a, a comedy, they, I think they read some of my scripts. I'm like, oh, it's okay. It's pretty good. So, yeah. And then the chutzpah part was uh, I was I was a PA, and I somebody I had to go drive Trey somewhere, and I had already sort of chutzpahed my way into being a writer's assistant when they put together a staff, I was like, do you guys have a writer's assistant? They were like, what, what do you mean? What's a writer's assistant? I mean, everybody, nobody had ever done this before. Those two had never really been in the industry? No. I mean, they did it all on their own. In fact, they, they still sort of do. They've managed to really figure out how they do things best. I mean, over 30 yeah. years, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but I was driving Trey somewhere, and somehow he, we were talking about uh, a, scri- a script that he was writing and that he hadn't been able to finish. And I said, hey, I can finish that. I, I have all the notes. And he sort of looked at me like, oh. Like, oh, I, can I, can I, can you do it? Yeah. So I wrote that script and they liked the, the draft and then I wrote another one and they liked it. I mean, a, a draft, a draft, and then I ended up getting the credit for that episode. And then, the, I mean, this is, God, I'm sort of, I have a little tingles thinking about it because I was so lucky and young and naive at the time, but I got this writing credit and the day after the show aired, agents were calling the, the show and saying, Who, who's Phil Stark? Does he have representation? And they'd say, well, he, he's on his way to Burbank with all the post-production supplies. But when he comes back, I'll give you the message. You know, this is before <laughs> cell phones, obviously. Um, so it was a really magical time, very special. And I was very lucky to, to get my start there. And that's what catapulted me. I mean, after the South Park credit, I was meeting with people who just say, hey, what did Matt and Trey like? Right. Right? What episode so we can watch it? I have credit on the, uh, the Halloween episode. And then there's one called Terror of Mecca Barbara. But, but what was the first one, though? Was that the Halloween one? Oh, the, well, the, the Spirit of Christmas was, no. was the short. No, no, no. Made. The one that, that you got your first writing credit oh, on. That was the Halloween episode. The one that I finished. I, maybe I shared credit with Trey. I don't remember exactly. Right. But it was the one like, oh, I know how that one ends. We, I have the notes for that. Yeah. So you were a human chat GPT. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A, a, human, a human Google to a certain extent. Yeah. What was, was that writing room a collegial, fun space? Well, Matt and Trey are like comedic geniuses and mm-hmm. best friends and have a rapport with their crew of friends from Colorado that they moved here with, who many of them are still working on the show. So uh, the making of the short, the money to make the pilot, actually producing the season, it was all done like, hey, they're giving us more money, guys. We can do this. <laughs> now, what Comedy Central said was, hey, you should put together a writing staff. That's how it works. We send you a bunch of scripts. You read them. You hire people. They sit in a room together in the traditional way. And Matt and Trey tried that. And, of course, the traditional five writers pitching on things was done in a non-traditional way in that it was in a hot tub in, in Big Bear. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that after that experience, after the first season, I left. And I was bummed because they didn't, I don't think they brought any of the writers back. Oh. And in retrospect, it was great because I was able to leave, get an amazing job, 
getting paid a lot more money in a guild setting, mm. uh, really on track in my, what you might call the big leagues. Like I had an office, I was thrilled. Yeah. Uh, however, at the time I was bummed because I loved this show and I wanted to be on it. But I believe that, I think from my limited understanding and you know, zoomed out view, Matt and Trey, I probably didn't respond to the classic writing staff. Mm-hmm. And after that season, just did everything on their own. They, they brought in some people, a woman named Pam Brady, super funny. I know they had different people over the years come in and write stuff that they trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, but they really created their own model for doing it. And it was just essentially really them. They wrote, they directed, they, they acted, they did the voices, they did the posts, all from, at that time, one room in Westwood. Uh, one final creative question for you about South Park and writing for it. I guess when the first episode stars a talking piece of poo that says Heidi Ho, mm-hmm. anything goes yeah. after that, right? Yeah. Although I have been in situations where the outrageous thing gets you on the map and then everybody pulls back and becomes conservative because they, they like the money that's flowing in. They mm-hmm. like being on the cover of Time. Mm-hmm. And they forget why they got there. Mm-hmm. These guys never forgot no, why. No, no. And continued to push the envelope yes. as much as they could. Yes. If it was off limits, that was going to be the episode. Right? right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And so was was that verbalized uh, in your year that you were there? Not so much, but I remember the, the best thing about the, the memory that I have that I enjoy the most about those guys is sitting around and they would hear that some celebrity did something lame or some politician said something about them or some executive wanted them to try something. And the response often was something like, fuck that guy. <laughs> so everything I think out of their worldview is like, fuck that guy. We can't say Tom Cruise is gay? Fuck it, we'll put him in the closet. You know? Oh, they, they say we can't have a talking poo? No worries, we'll have him sing. <laughs> did you get notes from Comedy Central that said, ugh, you're killing us over here on this one? Well, I don't remember I wasn't really involved with the day-to-day notes in that sense, but in the same way that Comedy Central would have liked them to put together a traditional writing staff and they did not respond to it, I think they would have liked them to respond to traditional notes, but the guys did not respond to it. But the proof is in the pudding because everybody fucking loved it. Right. And their whole, the whole point of watching the show is to say, I can't believe they said that. Exactly. Okay, so now we're segueing over to a Fox show. So this is the big leagues. Mm-hmm. As you say, it's a guild situation. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about money on this? Yeah. What was your, your bump when you moved from Comedy Central? It was amazing. I went from, uh, I think I got paid you know, five grand to write that first South Park script without any residuals. Uh-huh. And you know the Writers Guild minimum for a 30-minute program, I think at the time, was maybe like 24, 28 thousand or something wow and then i mean honestly i didn't appreciate the time but the residuals have paid for that many times over the guild pays twenty eight thousand dollars an episode if you have a writing credit their guild minimums for writing a feature a half hour tv show with a 60 minute tv show there's minimums i don't know what they are now back then it was an amount that i thought was ridiculous and ridiculously high yeah 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 and i i mean i i was plugged in i think i was making like mid six figures after after fucking digging through the trash to not trash but my my role let's put it this way if i had still been smoking at the time 
I would have been buying fresh cigarettes. We'll put it like <laughs> By that. the carton. Right, yes. Um, <laughs> and it was a, an amazing time in my life. Yeah. I, I was young. I was single. I was doing something I loved to do. I was making a lot of money. What, what was the first thing that you bought with this? Uh, I bought a, a stand-up arcade game. Which one? Um, God, I don't. I, I wanted to get uh, Galactus, the one that where you go in the circle. Mm-hmm. It has, it's the it's the uh, it's a lightning bolt that shoots, um, but <laughs> they didn't have it. So I ended up getting the first one that went like all the way around, and it's 360 degrees, and you're shooting things that are coming at you. I had it in my apartment. I had it rigged. I had a key, and I would either put all the credits on for my friends, or if they came over, I would fuck with them, and they'd be like, "Where are the credits?" I'm like, "Well, here's some change if you need it." <laughs> That was the first thing I bought. But which which apartment was this? I, I used to live over off Vermont and uh, Rodney. Uh, uh, no, Los Feliz Boulevard and Rodney. Okay, right up there. That was my first experience in the hood. As they yeah. Say. Um, uh, I, this is the late nineties. This ninety eight was my first year on seventies. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of when I, I I moved in here around around then. Yeah. Los Feliz has always been great. Yeah, absolutely. And it was great then. Yeah, it was amazing. Still yeah. is. Yeah. It's just a little more expensive. Right. Okay, so you bought a stand-up video game. When you brought the ladies home, mm-hmm. did they respond to this? Uh, well, uh, I always had a bottle of champagne in my fridge. That's another thing you can spend money on, right? That's pretty classy. I mean, nowadays it doesn't seem like a big deal, but when you're 24, uh, it's pretty classy to be like, hey, you want some champagne? I got a bottle. The good stuff? Yeah, you don't play the video games? Do you like champagne? All right. What kind of car did you buy? Uh, I was pretty responsible. I got a used Lexus, pre-owned Lexus. Used? Pre-owned. They have a really nice pre-owned But it, it sounds like one, one episode, you could buy whatever you want. Well, it, I'm glad that I had the instincts then that I appreciate now because I, I really just socked my money away. And, you, you know, did. I, I, spent, I bought weed and I was the guy, you know, I'd go out and buy for dinner for my friends or pay for the round of drinks. That was the greatest pleasure in life to be like, you guys whatever you want to drink. Right. right? Um, but I, I really socked all that money away. I invested it. I put it all into different Vanguard accounts. I bought a house. Good for you. Uh, and I, I really made that money work for me uh, as we got into what eventually became the lean years because when you're fat, um, it, it, I'm glad that I wasn't the kind of person who wanted to go out and spend and spend thinking that it would always be like that because it yeah. wasn't. Okay, so you're at, uh, you're at this... Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to call it a real show compared to South Park. South Park's real, too. But yeah. this, this seems like a more corporate situation. Yes. Guild-mandated uh, network television reruns, residuals, all that stuff. When, when the studio has notes, you listen to them? To a certain extent, yeah. I mean, that was, it wasn't quite a fuck, fuck that guy attitude. <laughs> there were more layers and more subtlety. But, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot about how to handle creative feedback, both from creative partners and... Uh, executives um there's a lot of well at the time though the comp the, the show is produced by carcer uh, carsey warner mm-hmm. uh, which was a big independent studio at the time roseanne cosby show so they insulated us from a lot of what other shows might have expected to get from notes from the network because oh. they might get some notes from the network and tom and or marcy might be like they got it guys we got we got it good so there was less interference in that sense and, and i feel like in almost any job you need somebody above you to kind of do the blocking for you mm-hmm. and protect you. Mm-hmm. And they were protecting you guys. Yes, yeah, yeah. Which kept it funny. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember anything specific that we fought for. But in general, I think you could extrapolate that 
part of the thing people liked about the show was a sense that it was different, and it was probably different because they didn't have to conform to some of the ideas that the network had for them. The other interesting thing about 70s show was when it debuted, the the lead actors didn't turn out to be the stars. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, you're talking about the parents more? Not even, I don't know. Were the parents supposed to be the stars? The ensemble shined. Ashton, Wilmer, mm-hmm. uh, Mila, mm-hmm. uh, they all really shined. And, and it was maybe also part of Carsey Werner's wait, they were able to say, we're going to cast all these kids that you never heard of. And the writers gave them material that they could run with. Oh, and Danny Masterson, too. There you part, go. Part of, yes. Can't forget him. Right. Yep. yep. Um, no, but, but, but I, I, always, I think that that's always interesting when the pilot comes out and everybody's like, this is, this is, this is what's going to work. The studio's like, yes, it is. We're going to buy it. And then life happens. Mm-hmm. And suddenly Ashton Kutcher, <laughs> Mia, become Hollywood stars. Right. And uh, 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 the other guy you mentioned ends up being like a, a, a ladies' Dang. man. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody grew up on that show. I mean, the, the, all the cast members I'm referring to, but myself too. I, I was, what, 24, 25 when that started. So I, that was my whole, all my late 20s and my early 30s, and we all grew up together. And I remember hanging out with those guys and... It used to be talking about shoes, and that would be talking about cars, and that would be talking about shows we're pitching, because, like, you know, Ashton had this producing career he he did, and then Topher and other people, you know, they would do movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that the show had such a long run, it had a safe... I mean, we got we got a two-year pickup. I mean, I never... I had such a charm career. I, uh, I remember the... I think it was after our first 13 or after the first season, we got the news, uh, Fox, Fox just picked up two seasons. And I'd never been in that situation before. I was like, oh, all right. Sounds about right. <laughs> Meanwhile, the crew's out there shooting guns, starting fires. Like, we have two years of work. It's, uh, it's amazing. Right. So, uh, it was a really safe, great environment for everybody to grow up in together. Is it, it I, I imagine studios would say the reason we don't give shows t- two years is because we want them to work for it. We want them to hustle. And we don't know what's going to happen in, in the environment a year from now, yeah. and we might be stuck with all these big salaries and, yeah. and commitments. Yeah. What do you think? If you were a studio head, um, should you give big shows well, long, long contracts? Well, this, has, this sort of brings us to what we're striking about right now, or what, what is being struck about, which is that at that time, the goal was to produce 200 episodes so you could go into syndication, mm-hmm. where the real money was. Um, now that is not a reality anymore. People mm-hmm. don't even appreciate it. There's no going home after school and watching back-to-back episodes of Seinfeld and Simpsons or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's a much different environment. In fact, uh, I'm sort of glad, even though it was a long, dark, slow, mysterious process to, to transition from doing what I did then to what I'm doing now, it's nice to look back and feel like uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more focused on enjoying what I'm doing as a therapist without having to deal with the realities of the different ways that technology and the industry are changing and affecting my work as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's go to Dude, Where's My Car, which I have not seen, but I watched the trailer today. So you, so you got it. I'm, I, I'm not going to spoil anything for you. I, don't think. I mean, they lost their car. First of all, incredible <laughs> title. Yes. I don't yes. have to be the one that tells you that. Oh, I love it. Same as Cocaine Bear. Fabulous Great. title, yeah. right? Oh, absolutely. Did you see that movie? No. Not good. Hmm. Just, just look at the poster. Mm-hmm. Um, in your case, though, 
what I read on on Wikipedia was Ashton wasn't the the guy at first. He wasn't. I I just assumed that the that if one of the writers of that '70s show writes a movie that Ashton is in, right. it's because something happened. Right. Right. No, I I wrote that as a spec, all on my own. Because if I'd asked anybody if I should, they would have said no anyways. <laughs> what are you crazy? Uh, and it, it 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 sold as a spec, and it eventually uh, made its way uh, to a producer named Gil Netter, who when the, the movie was close to being greenlit, he he called me up one day and said, "Hey, what, what, who's this Ashton kid? Is he funny?" He didn't know. Well, Ashton was his first gig '70s. It was either like the 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 uh, the the, um, the the lifeguard pilot in Hawaii or the '70s uh, show pilot, and he did the '70s. But he wasn't a star at that point. No. Oh. No. I mean, you know, I think he'd probably been known a little bit around town, probably auditioning more after the success of the first year of the 70s show. Mm. But uh, the producer asked me about it, and I said, he's hilarious. He, he'd be perfect. Yeah. I, I would have, if you would have asked me who I thought we should be leading this, it would be Ashton. Right. So it, I, I get that a lot from people who think that, like, it sort of came up with us together in that moment. But it, mm -hmm. it started separately, but it ended up being perfect. Uh, some of the people they, they mentioned on Wikipedia, and you can never trust it, as we know. Was Seth Rogen was supposed to be in that role or auditioned for that role? Mm -hmm. Jake G Gyllenhaal. Mm -hmm. Are those things true? I I wasn't involved so much in the casting, but I do know that a lot of people read for that. A yeah. lot of the actors who were the young, funny dudes at the time read for that role. Mm -hmm. Did you read uh, Busy Phillips's book? No. She talked about um, there was a moment where she had. She had a she had an idea for an ice skating movie mm -hmm. that ended up getting made, hmm. and she didn't get any credit for it. Mm. And she was so pissed, and she was pissed at the writers. Mm -hmm. And in the book, she says that she got advice from somebody who says who said, "Don't be mad at the writers. Nobody's going to remember the writer ever. You, in fact, this ice skating movie, I can get you on the red carpet, and the and the." The, the photographers are going to flash the light bulbs at you because mm -hmm. you are an actress and you're beautiful and you've been in these movies. The writers are going to sit in the corner at the premiere and talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And she said that's exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what ha Was that your experience of, dude, where's my car, where you write the thing, you think of the idea, uh -huh. you write the thing, right. and they don't even come to you and say, who do you think should be the dude? Well, you know, on a more global level, the writer always has this sort of shunted to the side kind of vibe in Hollywood, which will never change. And I tried to make it my work to not buy into that. You pay me the money, I'm gonna go off and write another script. Mm. I don't wanna elbow, I don't wanna try to elbow my way to the front. Um, on Dude Where's My Car, uh, the director, Danny Liner, RIP, um, he recognized that you're not gonna go hire another writer to do a rewrite on Dude Where's My Car. <laughs> right, I mean. <laughs> So he, he, he saw it was my point of view, and he had me around a lot. Hmm. So I was around a lot during the production. It shot you know, when I was on hiatus, because Ashton was high on hiatus. Oh. So I was able to be on the set as much as I wanted to. I rewrote scenes on the fly there. Um, so I was much more involved than, say, like the classic, you know, writer sells a, uh, a script, and then he never hears back from the producers mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, so what we end up seeing, when we do end up seeing it, is your vision? Maybe you could say it was my vision. Um, and of course, it's a very collaborative medium. But I will say that it's not like they took my script and mainstreamed it. Right. 
you know? Right. I mean, the whole point of that movie was like, are we really going to make this? And if we are, well, I guess we should make it like this. Although I will say that in the early drafts, it was such a stoner movie because I was smoking a lot of weed at the time and I, I just wanted to do all my Cheech and Chong bits. I love Cheech and Chong. Of course. I, I wanted to make it a combination of Cheech and Chong and Laurel and Hardy or mm -hmm. the, the, the Marx Brothers, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so in the original version, everybody's smoking weed. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the actual version that came out, the only person that smokes weed in the movie is the dog. Interesting. Which is sort of a victory, I guess, but... Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you write the script for a movie that gets made. Mm -hmm. That's beating all the odds. Oh, yeah. All the odds, right? Yeah. Like, does this happen to even 1% of scripts that get written? To sell a spec and to have it produced is, is rare. How did you do it? I, you know, there was no how. There was just, I did, right? And, and I did it. And in that point in my career, you know, I don't know if it's naivete or ignorance or youth, but I came out here to be a screenwriter. And my goal was to write scripts. And I was going to write a script that somebody's going to read and want to buy. And, you know, TV-wise, I, I chutzpahed and stumbled and lucked my way into the job that I was at 70 Show. And then when I wrote this feature, because I could have, you know, you've got I could have just not written anything else. And I, I would be writing my movie in my office during the day when we weren't working. People would come by, what are you doing? I'm writing a movie. Oh, that's cute. Phil's writing a movie. <laughs> I'm a staff writer, right? Uh, so to have it bought and made was... Uh, was sort of like, yeah, well, we got a two-season pickup on the show, of course. Oh, I sent it to my agent who sent it to a feature agent who called me up and said, hey, I'm your new feature agent. I want to let you know we're going to sell this script. And I said, all right, let's do it. <laughs> so the whole beginning of my career was achieving all these things that so many people come out here to try to do. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like you're saying it was just luck. No, talent, hard work, luck, chutzpah. Okay, all those things. All those things. And you wrote the damn thing, because a lot of people talk about the thing. Exactly. I could have spent that, instead of writing the, the, the script in my office, I could have been hanging out with the other staff writers talking about our ideas for scripts that we would like to write. Mm -hmm. Not that that's what they were doing. But there's something to be said for doing the work. There's something to be said for hustling, right? Getting out there and putting yourself in a position to make it happen. It's not like you're in the spot where it happens. You have to be running around and be in the right place to get to that spot to make it happen. You write this thing... And, and you had an agent because of your TV writing. Correct. So that TV agent gave it to a, a friend of his or a cohort who specializes in movies? Yes, exactly. And that guy believed in the script enough to sell it? That script was a great read. People oh. love to read that script. And I'd written it in a way that would make it readable. Like, uh, there's a bit where, um, of like the and then scene. Right, there's a scene where they go to eat Chinese food and they order and they try to order. And at the end, the woman says, and then <laughs> and they're like, oh, OK, we'll get some rice. And then and this is based on me and my good friend, Josh Kootner, who lived on Sunset and uh, by uh, El Compadre. That was a big hangout. Oh, yeah. He, Guitar Center. Yeah. We would order Thai food and he the woman would always say, and then and then and then. Oh, this is, is Toy Thai over there. I don't remember which to, to, uh, which Thai place it was. Yeah. But the end, so then the bit was, I, you know, I love bits that keep going and keep going and keep going. So when I wrote that scene, I wanted the reader to read a couple of pages and be like, oh, this is funny, all right. right. And then turn the page and see, oh my God, it's still going. And then, and then oh my God, it's still going. I wanted them to actually flip forward and see when does this scene end. Um, so it was, a, it was a popular read. Yes. And it was very blue and, and raunchy and different. Mm -hmm. So uh, at the time, 
whether or not people were going to make it or interested or even did comedies or interested in me, it was a popular read. So I got a lot of great feedback. Interesting. Um, okay. So a studio decides that they're going to take it? Well, it was ultimately bought by uh, the company that uh, Fred Smith had just started, Alcon Entertainment. Okay. So it wasn't bought by a big traditional studio. Um, it was bought by a smaller one. And then I developed it for a year. And then eventually, they, I think they took it to Fox or, or Gil Netter, who was a producer with Fox. And then it, it, it got a little bit of a push. And then it, it, really, it really happened. Um, but it was not like a big bidding war. It wasn't a huge thing. It just, mm -hmm. it, all it takes is just one person to say yes. Right. Yeah. Have you seen the movie The Player? Yeah. Is, is, is The Player like Hollywood still? Well, it's interesting. I, I think about that way Tim Robbins talked and that, like, do we need the writer? You know, I think that's just sort of the subtext a lot. Right. But, you know, I haven't really worked in the business much in a while. So uh, uh, I get the feeling, well, especially now with AI and, uh, and the value of writing. That, but AI is uh, never going to write that joke. That's true. I mean, maybe now it will because it'll base it on yeah. that. But, but AI will never write the original no, bit. No. But AI could write the fourth version of the whatever series of action movie there is. Right. Which, which sadly is, is what Hollywood only wants to make. It sort of feels like it's written by mm -hmm. AI, actually. I mean, it's, uh... Okay, can I ask you about money on this one? Yes. You finally do it. Mm -hmm. It gets sold mm -hmm. to, to Fox? Yeah. What's your check? Well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you. My, uh, this, was a, this was, as a new screenwriter, selling a, 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 their first spec without any previous credits, it, my deal was for 150 against three, meaning I get $150,000 up front, Broken I, down into various stages of payment for the delivery of the script. Okay. And then if the script goes in production, I get a check for $150,000. Another one? Yeah. The first installment was, you know, like 50 grand, 50 grand, whatever, for actually writing the script. It was played Thru, out. Throughout a year. Right, right, right. When it got made, I walked into the mini uh, bank at Albertsons <laughs> with a check for like 84 grand, something after taxes. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it was an interesting clash of my previous kind of starving artist world and then walking out with a check for that much to deposit at the ATM at my local supermarket. Well, you, you probably bought two bottles of champagne that day. Yeah, yeah. That's a great day, right? It was amazing. It was a great decade. Yeah. Okay, is there any... Oh, you get residuals, too, off yeah, of this. Yeah, So, okay, you write the thing, it gets made. I feel like it's it was a popular movie. Yeah. Did it... Did it was it popular in the box office? Did it do okay it, in real it, movies? It, it made money. Uh-huh. Um I was a little disappointed that it, it, they never really hopped on it in terms of sequels. I mm. felt like it could have really been a big franchise. It could have been a franchise based on the title and not the actors all. I love Sean William Scott and Ashton. Yes. Love you both. Yes. It could have easily been the next one with two different dudes. Right. And and so on. Yeah. Um Amigo, where's my Yeah. Lowrider. Yeah, well I don't know. Let, take two. Right. Amigo, <laughs> where's my Nova? Um, yeah. Um, right? Yeah, yeah. It could have been a worldwide thing. No, yeah. But what happened was, I mean, look, it, it had a good run, and it got me a lot of meetings. I remember uh, after the movie came out, I had a meeting with uh, the Farrelly brothers, uh, and I had to schedule things after work, though, because I was on 70s. So I think I had like a 7 o'clock drinks meeting with uh, their their head of development and we i couldn't ask out of the writer's room at 70 show early so we got out a little bit late and i drove 
I think I drove on the shoulder all the way down the 405 from the 134 to the 10. Because you were like, fuck it. I was I, like, I'm making this meeting. I got to do it. Yeah. But uh, so even though it did not become a worldwide phenomenon as far as uh, sequels, uh, it got me a lot of work. Um, oh. Yeah. So uh, good. Uh, and, I mean, it was it was a success all, all around. Let's 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 rewind just a little bit and talk about residuals, because there's a guy on Instagram. I forget his name, but he's a writer and he talks a lot about um, residuals and he opens up his checks uh, every couple of weeks mm-hmm. and he talks about why this one is so big, why this one is so little. And and as we're learning, those of us who are outside of the industry, the streamers hardly pay you anything in mm-hmm. residuals. Mm-hmm. And if it's on network TV, that's where the good money is. Yeah. And I guess that's what the strike is about, is that um, it's, it doesn't seem fair when two guys from Netflix, the two guys on top, are making hundreds of millions of dollars, and the belief is, well, but we don't have any for residuals. Right. Is, is that how you feel? Well, um, th- my experience with residuals um, has been, started off like gravy, because on that 70s show, you write an episode, it's instantly replayed on Fox, and you get like half of your script fee. And then, you know, it's down the line, you get less and less money, but it starts off pretty high. I remember in the 08 strike, which I was a part of, was the worry that, well, wait a second, if, if you guys have streaming networks and it's not quote unquote TV, then what happens to our money? And they're like, oh, don't worry about it, we'll figure it out. Next thing you know, the next show that's on Fox, the first rerun is not on Fox, it's on Hulu. Oh. And instead of making uh, 16.5, you're making $500 no. because it's a different platform, right? And there's different residuals for the platform. You get a different rate for uh, network reruns. You mm-hmm. get a different rate for, you know, airplanes, uh, mm. streaming. And then when, if you're lucky enough for it to sell into syndication, that's where the real money is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's, it's very arcane. It's hard to know. Sometimes you'll get an envelope with a huge envelope. You're like, all right, and they're all checks for like seven cents. And sometimes you get one, and it's like a check for five grand. Huh. Yeah. Uh, am I crazy to think that Netflix is just ripping everybody off and that there's money there for, for you guys? Well, I mean, there's always money, right? Um, the idea that these network executives make much more money than everybody else, I think, is, is not desirable, certainly. It's an, out, it's an outgrowth of just the system. Mm-hmm. You can't legislate it away, and you can't shame anybody into changing that. Um, I, I don't have so much a problem with how much these guys make as long as I'm making what I need to make. And so right. I really sympathize with a lot of these writers right now because... I don't know how I would have done it if, I mean, the residuals, I, I was young and f- free and I didn't really care about residuals. It's cut to now, I'm getting these checks. I'm like, thank God, mm-hmm. I need these now. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not sure how it works right now with these writers because there, there seem to be basically no residuals, really. Mm-hmm. And certainly there's no syndication market. I mean, back in 1998, WGN, that's why Carsey Warren made all this money. You want to buy the Cosby Show reruns. It'll, it'll be a huge hit. Just pay us X amount of money for these shows that we've taped 20 years ago. And you're just minting money. Now, nobody's going to pay money to have those shows on their, uh, their reruns because there's, uh, there's so many other shows. In fact, nobody even watches TV. In fact, I feel like a dinosaur saying the word television. We should put a disclaimer on this podcast so people understand when we say television. We just mean that screen that you're watching the stuff on. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
are, so are you still in the guild? No. When did you leave? Um, well, let's see. In 08, the 70 show ended in 06. The next strike was in 08. And uh, uh, over the next 10 years, you know, it was really slow uh, uh, decrease in the amount of money, success, and pleasure I was taking in writing. Hmm. But uh, it was very hard to imagine myself doing anything else because I'd had so much success. You know, I would say to people, man, I, I'm fucking sitting here trying to write pilots and pitch ideas, and I, I'm really not liking it. And people would say, well, you, you did it before, man. You've done it. And I'd be like, yeah. I can do it again. But it almost felt like you were trying to break in all over again. Mm. Uh, at the same time, I didn't know what else I would do. I never had any backup plan. Uh, so it took a long time for me to realize that you know, I'm not really happy doing this. And there's nothing worse than a bitter writer. Who wants to write, buy something from a bitter writer? <laughs> right? Um, well, so I don't know if he writes Taxi Driver. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so uh, it took me a while to both accept that I was unhappy doing something that had been my life's goal for a long time. And also find mm. something else that I could enjoy doing as well, being a therapist. Mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. I, I tell people that I went from an industry where you don't want to go in with any gray hairs in your beard to uh, you want to go in with some gray hairs in your beard. <laughs> uh, so you went back to school. Yeah. You got a master's. I got my master's in psychology. What uh, school? Antioch. Where's that? Uh, it's over sort of south of Culver City. Okay. West side. Okay. Was that a pleasant experience? Yeah, it was fun. Were you, had you been in therapy before? I've been in therapy on and off my whole life. And you enjoyed that process? I appreciated that process. <laughs> All right. I maybe enjoyed it on the back end, but I'm, I'm joking. But yeah, um, I'd been in therapy since my, my parents split up when I was young, and my mom was really into therapy, and she took me. And then oh. at various points in my life, usually in phase of life issues, mid-20s, what am I doing with my life? Am I ever going to get married? Mid 30s, oh my God, I'm gonna be a dad. Mid 40s, oh my God, I'm divorced. Uh, <laughs> and so I'd had that experience in therapy. And now I work with a lot of men who are also experiencing those similar phases of life. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I got my master's and it's been a transition. Financially, it's, it's not a big money maker. There's no residuals in therapy, <laughs> right? The guild is not nearly as powerful. Right. Um, but. I love doing it. It's very nice. In the same way that I used to sit down at the computer and really love writing a 70s script or a draft of Dude, now I love either working in session with people or writing about my, uh, using the same muscle in terms of writing about therapy. Uh, recently, we've, we had to do Zoom for almost everything because of COVID. And I imagine your practice was like that too. Yeah. Instead of face-to-face, -face, it was Zoom. Right. Can therapy be effective on a screen? Absolutely. And it is. And I only see clients via telehealth. Oh. Yeah. So you don't see people face to face. No. No. And that's you prefer it this way? Yeah. Well, a lot of my training after college and before I got my associate license was on Zoom by necessity. Oh. And what I found, like many phases of our life, there are things that we did before in person that we now do on Zoom and we, we like it better that way. And my clients, not everybody. But are we talking about sexting? <laughs> With pornography. What, what do I do? What do I do now on a screen? <laughs> um, but I, I love being in my house. I love not driving to my office. Yes. I love, uh, love the convenience. I love the time. 
It calms me. I enjoy it. And I find that the clients I work with value that as well. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a huge component to being in the room with someone in therapy. I mean, I've been on the couch on the other side of the therapist, and uh, I appreciate that. It's huge. But there's also pros and cons to uh, doing it uh, on screen. And so uh, mm -hmm. it's really sort of interesting. I mean, I connect so much. I'm looking at you right now, and I could yeah. be looking at a computer screen and connecting with these clients who I've worked with for so many sessions. But then you log off and you're like, they're gone. And you also, I also wonder, like, am I like a max headroom to these people? Am I just a, a, screen, a, you know, a box on a screen? And I wonder if the lack of human connection might affect the therapy. But mm -hmm. what I found that it doesn't, at least with the clients that I'm working with. They also might cancel less, too. If they, it, let's pretend that you are in Culver City. Absolutely. I've got to schlep all the way over there. Absolutely. And then fight traffic to come back. Yeah. Or at least in my head, fight it. Right. Um, and so I might cancel because that's a, a two and a half hour commitment. Yeah. And think about, I mean, if I have to drive to the office and somebody cancels, what am I going to do? <laughs> well, if I'm at home, I'm like, okay, it's cool. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm yeah. going to go get a taco. I'm going to do some laundry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Talk to me about the, um, about the, the positive reinforcement for you as a therapist, because I've only done a, a few sessions of therapy and it didn't really work for me. I don't think I had the right people and, or maybe I'm just not the right person for it. Whatever. Um, I feel like when I had to break up with her kind of, it was probably painful for her mm. and she probably felt rejection. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was rejection mm -hmm. and on the flip side, if it had been successful, it's really a long game. Mm -hmm. Therapists aren't going to really know that they've really helped their clients mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's got to be hard, right? Well, um, I, 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 when I, when I, I do that, I cycle through with a client. We work for like 50 sessions, and it ends, and they're happy, and they, they thank me and move on. I mean, that's, that's how you write it up. Um, but... Uh, your, your, your observation that you had to break up with your therapist mm -hmm. and she must not have liked it. Well, I think in, in my view, the therapist's job as I see it is to model how to handle that interaction. Like if you wanted to break up with me, I wouldn't handle like a, a normal person or a normal, I wouldn't be like, oh, fine. Yeah, great. Well, well you're lost, well, you know, yeah, I'll call, <laughs> you know, we should get lunch, I'll call you. Well, whatever, talking around it. Yeah. If, if you were breaking up with me and I was hurt, I might say something like, man, I'm really, I'm really disappointed. I really enjoyed working with you. Mm -hmm. I, tell me more about it. Mm -hmm. You want to handle these things in a way that you model them for people to handle them in their own relationships. You're, you're modeling because you're trying to lead by example? Right. For instance, uh, a classic thing with therapy is uh, payment. And, and if you're late and have to pay, mm -hmm. right? So I have a 24-hour cancellation policy. So if a client doesn't notify me before 24 hours, I say, hey, I'm going to try to reschedule you, but if I can't, I'm going to charge you for the week. It's my time. And, and people are like, oh, that's cool. I get it. And then when it happens, every fiber in your body wants to be like, oh, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Or charge, and, and I don't want to explain it. Yeah. And then you get into the room with somebody, and they might be pissed off, but you, it's not really talked about. And it's important. I'm modeling the healthy way to approach that conversation, which is, listen, I had to charge you for that, and I felt a little guilty about it, but I know that it's what I said at the first place, so I'm trying to stand up for that. How are you taking it? Good. Well, I'm a little pissed off. That makes sense. You didn't want to be late. Mm -hmm. And it's all about talking about it in a healthy way so that in the future, in the relationships, when this guy's girlfriend does something like this, he won't just shut down. He'll be able to verbalize uh, how he feels. Yeah. And talk about it. 
I am a total novice to this psychiatry world, therapy world, all that. So my assumption is the majority of the stuff that you have to hear, have to, you get paid to. Mm -hmm. Love, mm -hmm. money, mm -hmm. mom and dad. It's pretty good pie chart there. I, I, would, I would broaden that into uh, relationships and family history. And, and, and careers, let's say. They do talk about their careers a lot. Yeah. People care about their jobs. Well, money, money is important, but it usually, it, it's, it, uh, with the clients I work with, it's not in and of itself the topic. It's usually relationships and uh, either romantic or family. So if it's family, it's probably negative. Well, they, they don't. They don't every week. Oh my God, I love my mom so much. We had the greatest conversation. Well, you know, it's interesting because sometimes I might hear that, and then eventually I might be like, you know, you say you love your mom a lot, but I hear you complaining a little about this, that, and the other. <laughs> uh, we can learn so much about how we act in our romantic relationships by analyzing how those relationships were modeled for us by our parents or caregivers. Oh. So whenever I work with anybody in a relationship and they talk about their dynamic and how they act, I always get curious. I mean, it's a little Freudian to say, tell me about your mom. Mm -hmm. But I would say, you know, say, tell me about your parents. Like, how did they, how did they interact? What were they like as a couple? How did they show love? Was right. your dad affectionate? What was your mom like? What happened when your dad got angry? And oftentimes, we'll explore that and realize that there are parallels to be drawn uh, in their current relationship. And I'll often say something like, you know what, Joe, it makes sense that you act this way with your wife because you told me that your dad always acted with your mom like that. Right now, that's part of the big part of it is just to uh, be aware of that. And then you actually get into trying to change that, which can be harder. But mm -hmm. it can be a little bit of a eureka moment for people to realize, oh, I'm not just acting like this because my partner is a jerk. It's because this is just how I have learned to act in relationships. Mm -hmm. And so do you wait for that moment to to deliver that gold or is it naturally part of your conversation? Well, with ideally, them? ideally, those moments come up. Yeah. You, 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 you know, everything I do, I think, is a little bit more holistic and a little bit more uh, uh, freeform as far as not knowing what the goal is. Mm -hmm. But through asking questions and being curious, you often uncover reasons behind uh, or explain the behavior uh, that we're dealing with that brought us into therapy in the first place. Because we were both admitted uh, drug users, <clears throat> at least formerly, how do you feel about... Uh, mushrooms in therapy um dmt ecstasy mm -hmm. are you in favor of of that kind of thing do, is this something that you do right now as well a therapist? I, I always try to be clear with my clients if i'm using any of those drugs while we're in session first of all <laughs> it's a very important ethically to be aware you wear a different hat right right um but no I, you know there's a lot of very clinical and scientific studies about the effects of uh, uh these drugs on for instance ptsd and veterans and people and i think it's really effective at the same time Many of us have been to a Fish or a Grateful Dead show and had some mushrooms and had a wonderful time and hugged everybody and thought that uh, everything is so nice in the world. Yeah. Um, in terms of blending those, I personally don't work with clients in any kind of way that uses psychedelics or things to open them up. Mm -hmm. But having had those experiences, I can appreciate how that might happen outside of the therapy room. But that, it sounds like that's not a path that you want to take in the future. I'm not so interested in, in using... Uh, the research about drugs and hallucinogenics or mushrooms and stuff to facilitate a better therapy experience. I'd much rather have a client come to me and say, hey man, I took ecstasy and I, I felt like I loved everybody. Can, can, I, can I be like that? Why can't I be like that all the time? And you know, we'll talk more about their own personal history and emotional material. Um, but I do have friends and colleagues who are really interested in the link between uh, 
you know, ecstasy and uh, PTSD or mm -hmm. using it for to help open people up like that. I would imagine that one reason that some therapists may shy away from that type of, of therapy is when you have an aha moment while you're intoxicated, a month down the road, it doesn't really ring true anymore. Mm -hmm. Is, is that That's, where you're coming that from? That scene you write when you're totally baked that is hilarious. <laughs> it doesn't always play in the room. Right. It's true. Right. And so, so again, so maybe with PTSD, if they're in such a, a hole, at least it gets them out of the hole temporarily. Yeah. And once they're out, then you can do the work. Yes, which is what I tell people about antidepressants. Oftentimes, I will recommend a client talk to a psychiatrist about antidepressants if they are so depressed and worn down that they can't function. Mm -hmm. And the idea that the way I explain uh, my clients this phenomenon and I experienced it myself is that you take an antidepressant, you find the right one, and ideally you wake up one day and you feel like the weight is off your shoulders. And it's not up to you to just keep taking this pill to continue to feel like that. It gives you the opportunity to do the, the work in therapy to figure out what led you to that place with the idea that eventually you won't need uh, the antidepressants anymore. How many years have you been a therapist? Uh, three, four? I'm bad with years. Oh, that's it? You're, um, you're kind of new to well, all hold this. Hold on, I, I graduated. Well, this is 2023. 2021. Well, I, I, you know, after school, what I, I, I'm an associate right now. Uh -huh. After you graduate and get your license to be an associate, you have to do a, have a, a lot of hours to qualify to get your license. Okay. But it doesn't change the way that I see clients. So I've been seeing clients for, let's say, uh, two and a half years. Okay. Do, have they cried in your therapy sessions? Oh, yes. I mean, full disclosure, I'm not, uh, the confidentiality of the, of the client experience is paramount and I can't reveal anything about it. But people cry in therapy. Okay. Have you, the, we can, say, we can a ask this question. Have you cried as a therapist? No, but I have gotten pretty emotional, uh, sort of piggybacking along the journey of, of my clients. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And an honor, I'm like, I'm getting a little teared up right now, yeah. to have somebody open up to you and right. be vulnerable in a way that they have not been with anybody else in their life. Right. And yet at the same time, after 20 sessions, say thanks. That was great. And never meet in person. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is the positive feedback, right? This, yeah. is, this, is, this is the good stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, the money's fine, but this is the good stuff. That's, that's what I really enjoy about it, is, is feeling like I I'm helped somebody, which is... I think it's a function of age, because if you asked me in 24 if I wanted to help somebody, I'd be like, help them do what? You know, I never volunteered. I never really looked out for anybody else's. But as I've gotten older and become a parent, I think I, I put more value in, in sharing and uh, helping and, <clears throat> and uh, you know, assisting or helping people. So three, three years deep, you're writing a book about all this. Yeah. And because this, that's another way to, to help people. Yes. Because not everybody is going to end up on your telehealth. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and some people will just never do therapy. Absolutely. And so this book is an extension of all that. Mm -hmm. Is this book easy for you to write? Yes. The book is called Dude, Where's My Cartharsis? Because I love a good title. Uh, and in fact, I think some of my comedy friends were like, w w are you going to write a book about therapy? Is it going to be called Dude, Where's My Cartharsis? <laughs> yeah, yeah, now it is. That's perfect. <laughs> So the book is a is a is a friendly and engaging guide to talk therapy. It's meant for people who have never been in therapy, or maybe are just curious, or did it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and it's fifty chapters, and each chapter illustrates an example of a metaphor that we often use to talk about therapy, like the creative crop rotation. Mm -hmm. I had a, a great session with a client who was an artistic person and worked in the 
the industry who was feeling burned out and we talked about other things he liked to do and then he started to do other things and he got back to the thing he liked and he was even he was like it worked so that's a chapter now and it's you know it's a quick read but it's the idea that somebody might read something in this book and be like oh i've felt that i've experienced that and because i love i used to love self-help books i still do and i love the idea i mean the work that i'm doing in person with people is really rewarding but i would love to think that somebody could buy this book and out of the 50 chapters find one that helped them uh manage their life and be happier 50 not 15 50 five zero how, how many pages is this book going to be well it, it's it's out the, oh it the, is the, yes the, how the, many pages uh i don't know exactly how many pages it, it, when you when you tell me fifty, it sounds like a big ass book. No, it's not a big ass book. All right, good. Chapters are short. Great. Short. I mean, it, you know, I don't know how, what your bowel movements are like, but theoretically, you could read a chapter on the toilet. I. That's where I do my wordle. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> depends how fast you wordle, I guess, too. Let's talk about Franklin Hills. Yes. You've lived on this side of town for a long time. Yeah. Uh, we say this side of town because uh, we are in my courtyard, my recording studio courtyard in East Hollywood. It's a beautiful day. Yeah. Um, so you were nice enough to agree to do this outside. Um, we've already explained you love Los Feliz. Um, Franklin Hills is home of uh, Marshall High School. Mm-hmm. And go now, Barristers. Go, go the who? Go Barristers. <laughs> Isn't that a crazy nickname? It is. Uh, in the parking lot on Sundays is the Los Feliz Flea Market. Yep. Which is like the hippest, coolest. It, it, well, it's, yeah, it's the, it's the, yeah, it's the same people who run the Melrose one. Mm -hmm. They do that. It's Odd Market, I think. Odd Lot, something like that. Oh. Well, that's smart. Yeah. I've walked through that a couple times. And as a 50-something-year-old man, it's bizarre to see all my favorite records mm -hmm. being sold to teenagers, mm -hmm. clothes I wore in yeah. the 70s and 80s being sold to yeah. college kids. Yeah. I mean, if I just kept all my old crap, I would have a booth yeah. over there. Well, my son, Jacob, who's a senior at Marshall, he's into vintage clothing. He's a, like a deals in vintage clothing. And uh, he's long gone cleaned out all my closet. I mean, he sold all my, I had a bunch of old South Park stuff. He sold it all. Um, and I always try to make sure, like, my daughter Goldie was wearing a, I think it was a Who shirt, a Who concert shirt the other day. And I was like, I like your shirt. Oh, yeah, it's cool. Uh, what's a Who song? <sighs> Dad. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, so it, it, it's nice to see these kids appreciate the design and right. the look and the vibe. But I always like to know, hey, you know, do a little research. So you're with me on that. Yeah. Because usually the quiz is, give me three songs from Iron Maiden. I say <laughs> Iron Maiden because when I was in high school, yeah. I bought this shirt without knowing Great Iron Maiden. Great shirts. Great shirts. The best, right? Yeah. Like, uh, Maiden and Judas Priest had amazing shirts. Skeletons riding tigers yes! with swords. Yes. And, and I was like, Mom, I want that. She's like, she said, oh. what songs do they sing? Oh, that's where you got it. Okay. And I was like, I don't even know. Because you, you're you've got the power of the well, purse. Well, there's the devil rapes uh, your daughter. Uh, <laughs> drink my blood in hell. 
okay, fine, fine. You'll get the shirt. Yeah. She was like, you really want that? I was like, I really want that. Uh, and and eventually the peer pressure taught me, buy the freaking album then, of the shirt you're wearing, mm-hmm. to find out if you like it. Mm-hmm. And of course I loved it. But, um, but that's funny that they're doing that with the Who? The Who's design is that good? Well, I think she, she stole the shirt from her mom. Uh, and it was one of those, it was like, the the baseball tees with, oh, the white, yeah. with the white sleeves and taking it on the sides, you know, vi- vintaged up. Yes, vintaged up for sure. So tell me some of the other things that you love about. Uh... Well, I live right across the street from Marshall. Oh, and I love that neighborhood. I, I love walking through the hills. What I do is I walk south past Marshall, mm-hmm. and then I go down the secret staircase, and I walk by the Lycée, and then I go curve around, and then sometimes I go straight down by Prospect Studios. Sometimes I keep going straight, and I end up sort of dropping down over by the Jiffy Lube on Sunset, or I'll veer off to the left back onto Hyperion. I love it. And then it's always it's always some ending up on Hillhurst somehow and then coming back up to get a taco at Yuka's for the walk home. Yuka's is yours. Yeah. Not uh, Best Fish Taco of Ensenada? I love that place. Mm-hmm. It's a relative newcomer. It's only been there probably 15 years. <laughs> uh, Have you ever seen the owner guy? Yeah. He seems like... This is what I want. He's a mensch. He's just a big, goofy guy who thought of an idea, hey, let's sell fish tacos. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Like, fish, shrimp, I think they added potato. Yeah. And I feel like they maybe just have a new item now. But, but yeah, Coke in a can. Right. Yeah. No, no malarkey, as our right. president would say. Right. No, I love it. And, uh, but I kind of feel that about this whole area over here is – some of the people have been very fortunate, like yourself, and have nice houses. But a lot of people are living in apartments and on their way up, on their way down, or just mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like a very peaceful, nice place. Well, it's funny you mention that. I, I was at the Rustic the other night, and I hadn't been to the Rustic in a long time. And I, in my in my, you know, twenties, uh, my sort of tribal culture of single friends hanging out, the Rustic was the place. Yes. So. I went to the Rustic with some of my old running buddies, and not running is running, but ran around with. Yeah. <clears throat> and got some wings, got some beer. It's great, <laughs> that place. That place is the kind of place around here that you can at least say it has not gotten worse. It has definitely gotten better. Yes. But it was so nice to see all the 20-somethings, or maybe you know, a little older, sitting around at tables for eight, shooting the shit, having fun. And to them, I don't think they're thinking, I mean, they're probably thinking the rent's high. Or mm-hmm. it's an expensive place to live, but it's not like us when we walk up and we see, oh my God, I, I used to pay seven fifty for this place, yeah. and now it's nineteen hundred. That's insane. At least they have the value of this being their first experience. But I think that's one of the things again that I like about this area is maybe from afar, or if somebody just parachutes into Silver Lake and ends up on Hillhurst, they might think, oh, this is all gentrified. This is all shishi, but the rustic isn't. Neither oh. is the drawing room across oh. the street. Oh my God. And and even though that Trader Joe's on uh, over closer to you yeah. is kind of famous and now infamous, um, and the, there's the Gelsons across the street, just that whole neighborhood isn't as yuppified or hipster as I think it gets called. Yeah, well, you know, gentrification it means so many things to so many right. people, and it, there's so there's a whole rainbow, not just shades of gray of that. Yeah, um, and it's harder, especially I think as you get older, because inflation is a real thing, both in reality and in my mind. So for me to, uh, uh, you know, think about going to Yucas and getting a taco. In fact, actually, I got a burrito the other day, and listen, I'm never going to stop eating there, but it's expensive. It's more than I uh, was it eleven dollars? Was it twelve? The burritos are maybe approaching 
eight, nine dollars. Yeah. Which to 24 year old Phil, that would be a travesty. Now it's just the way things are. But you're right in the sense that that particular, I mean, Hillhurst is wonderful because it, it begins and ends. Yeah. It's a little bit isolated. Um, and certainly things have changed. You know, the new Italian place opened where Purans used to be. Mm-hmm. And there's a fancy Starbucks there, like a concierge Starbucks. Yeah. Um, I remember when McCall's opened, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is very expensive, but that's why it's amazing. It's still amazing. Yep. Um, but yeah, there's still there's still places uh, like Best Tacos in Sonata and Yucas and uh, even the Albertsons, even though it's had a big facelift, at least it's not a Bristol Farms or a Whole Foods. That's right. Uh, and uh, across the street, what is that, a Sprouts? What, what the, the, the natural food store? Oh, yeah, right across Whatever the street. Whatever that is over there. But, but even with those elements, I still don't feel – because, I mean, look at me. I'm wearing bathing suit trunks and a Hawaiian shirt. I am not a yuppie. I am not a hipster. I, I – if you are, good for you. But that, I like a little edge. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful I'm in East Hollywood because that's the part of Hollywood I, I feel comfortable in. Mm-hmm. Um, See, this is the nice part of East Hollywood, by the way. This is the this – is the, this is the, well, East East Hollywood – it is East East Hollywood. Some people call it Los Feliz. I, I, I don't want to. But, uh, but, but my point is is that even Los Feliz has a little bit of edge and grit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably aren't going to get mugged. You're probably, your car's probably not going to get broken into. But you're going to see some people who aren't dressed nice there, yeah. who aren't making a fortune there. Yeah. Um, I've even seen some Trump uh, uh, signs in some windows of Los Feliz. Mm. Have you seen those in Franklin Hills? No, no, but but the vibe you're talking about, it's interesting because I often think about this when I go to the West Side mm-hmm. and I compare the feeling like that to the one over here. Yes. And I'm not sure how to exactly verbalize it, but it does feel different. And I would use adjectives like it's a little grittier over here. It's a little dirtier. It it's is. a little messier. And I can't, I have a hard time figuring out specific examples of that, but that's the feeling that I get. And I'm always glad to come back over here and get back into that feeling. I also feel like this is the end of their journey. When, when they live here after 30-something years old, that this is it. In, in Santa Monica, I feel like they're still looking at Pacific Palisades, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Even though they're living in Santa Monica, they're doing okay. Mm. They're like, yeah, but Maury sure has a nice pool. Yeah, even if you're here, you would probably not want to go north of the boulevard. You'd rather just end up on one of these hills right. around here somewhere. Right. We were hiking in Franklin Hills, and a very famous artist was having a block party. And I was like, good for him. Good for him. This is where he wants it. He could live anywhere. Mm-hmm. But this is where he wants to live. Yeah. And, and maybe it's because of Marshall. Do you think that that high school has attracted families to want to stay there? Well, the public schools in the neighborhood are outstanding. In fact, when I bought my house, my house is a pool. And I was standing, it's got a wonderful balcony looking west over the reservoir in a pool. And I remember when I first saw it, I walked out and I was looking at it, and the realtor was in the middle of explaining to me that you have Ivanhoe Elementary School, King Middle School, and Marshall High School, all three great schools that you will be able to send your kids to you know, public school for. And I, a single guy at the time, was like, okay, okay, yeah, let's go look at the pool. <laughs> right? In retrospect, all my kids went to all those schools, and I was so lucky that I actually bought the house in that neighborhood. So to answer your question, certainly for families who are looking to be in this area, the public schools are huge. And because real estate's so expensive, you can justify it a little bit by saying, well, instead of spending X money on private school, we can save it and then put it in the house. 
it, it, so all those things came true. The, the realtor was correct. All those public schools did live up to the hype. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you have been fantastic. I'm sorry that your former union is on strike. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your prediction for this strike? How Man. long do you think it will last? Oh, gosh. Uh, what do you think that they'll get out of these rich I, SOBs? I, I hope that there will be an agreement that will put a framework in place so that writers can participate meaningfully financially in the reuse of their material. Yes. Um, I, I'm very curious to see how the AI part of it uh, works out. At the very least, I hope that they can come to an agreement that, you know, it's sad to think that maybe we need to meet again or strike again in five years, but I think especially with the AI stuff, we're not going to be able to codify all the rules we need to make things equitable right here. But I'm hoping that they can come to some kind of agreement that can get people back to work. I, I think that the, the, the most disturbing thing about the AI thing is about the extras, or as they call them, the background actors. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of these people don't realize what they're involved in, and if they stand in front of a green screen and rotate around, they may not know that their image is being digitized so that they can be in crowds in mm-hmm. in the next Gone with the Wind, in the next uh, Ten Commandments, right. the Eleventh Commandment, yep. um, <laughs> and not get paid for it. Yeah, And that's their face. Right. I mean, they may never see it because it'd be tiny, but... You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, the existential threats are so big and vague that it's hard to know how you're going to get your hands around an agreement with that. But at the very least, with streaming residuals and the, the state of uh, the amount of writers in a room and minimums, maybe that's an area where they can get something done relatively quickly. But I, I, I don't know, man. When I was on the strike last time, it was a long summer. And uh, I don't remember anything that we did specifically that brought everybody back to the table. It was just sort of a war of attrition. So I'm a little concerned about that. Um, But on the other hand, I'm enjoying much more working as a therapist with people who are walking the picket lines as opposed to walking the picket lines like I did in 08. But, but, and and what a great therapist. You can speak for experience. Yeah. So when, it's so funny, you you reached out to me, I think about five hours before I put up... um, the the video of uh, the Hellboy actor Ron Perlman. Oh right. Who said, "We know who this motherfucker is, mm-hmm. and we know where he lives." Mm-hmm. And I guess he felt guilty about that and took it down, and we put it up, mm-hmm. and it did eight million views mm-hmm. because I think it resonated with people that mm-hmm. L.A. is a small place, mm-hmm. and we do know where everybody lives, mm-hmm. <laughs> and if we don't, our buddy does, mm-hmm. and so. You can't really be in an ivory tower, even if you're making 150 million bucks a year. Mm-hmm. And unlike some other unions, the Writers Guild and SAG is the heart of this business. Oh well, yeah. I mean, the fact that SAG's on strike now is huge. It's like the Big Brother coming. Mm-hmm. So I would think they're, they're going to get everything that they want because the studios can't adjust. They can sure, sure even if they wanted to wait it out a year. All these people could be Uber drivers. They could survive. Yeah. Like, everybody can survive. Yeah. They're not going to lose their house. Well, it's interesting, too, because the members of the AMPTP now are different. I mean, back then, if you had Fox and uh, Disney and uh, Sony, uh, these were all big conglomerates, but they were all about entertainment business, right? Making content. Now you have Amazon. I mean, Amazon, this whole issue is a drop in the bucket, I think, of their what their business is. Um, even companies like... Uh, 
well, you know, Hulu obviously is, is a is a company created by Ali Studios, but even like what Warner, the Zavlov guy with with that big conglomerate, that's all content too. But um, they're just so much more able to get by without uh, without the work of the writers and the actors, I think, than they were before. To to your point, Apple doesn't need Apple TV oh, Plus. Apple exactly. They don't yeah. need it. In fact, I don't think they're making a lot of money off of that. Yeah, uh, I I. I I drive Uber, and whenever I have a British passenger, I ask them about Ted Lasso. And they're like, never even heard of it. Because mm. over there, they don't give it away with an iPhone. Mm-hmm. They make you pay for it. Mm. And so Apple Plus isn't big anywhere, really. Yeah. And so I guess the leverage isn't so big on them, but you mentioned Warner. That's, I mean, they worked hard to take the HBO part out of HBO Max. Yeah, well, that that's that's interesting. That's like the sort of the opposite of the old the old days of the the film executives, uh, in the, like the twenties and thirties, building the studio and vertically integrating and doing all that. This is more of like corporate, not raiders, but like a, a huge conglomerate putting huge, huge, massive pieces of content together and stripping them down and cutting this off and doing this to to get like the Wall Street. I think a, a big merger. I think. I mean, I'm not a BA, a business major, but. There's a lot of work they have to do to cut and streamline and make the, the skeleton perfect so that Wall Street will respond to it in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And that usually involves paying people less, right? Right. Right. So they might lose money because they're not producing any TV shows and nobody wants to watch. But their bottom line might reflect a, a great uh, victory. And making- right. Netflix's stock went up when the strike started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the investors were like, good. We don't yeah. like it when you pay people. And, and you know... Uh, <laughs> The difference, again, also with this uh, strike now and then in 08 was now, um, back then maybe if there was a strike, there was a lot of reality shows, let's say. It's generalizing, but there was a lot more reality shows. Okay, if you liked it, watch it, fine. Now there's a strike. Well, what are you going to watch? Well, you know what? I'm just going to watch The Wire again. Right. I'll watch The Sopranos again. Right. And that hour a day that you spend watching something is now not affected by whether in, this in, new program. Until the, until the guilds say, cut your cable. And cut your streaming. Yeah. Because I I cut my Hulu and my uh, Netflix out of respect. But then I saw a tweet that said, don't do that yet. We want to use that as leverage. We we want to be the reason why it goes down. Yeah. And, I mean, I want to listen to to the union Mm -hmm. because those people are are thinking hard. Yeah, yeah. A lot harder than I am in my stupid room saying, screw you, Hulu. (laughs) Uh, And I have rewatched The Wire recently, and it is... Totally worth it, it. Uh, man. I, I I'm due. I don't know if I'm due for a rewatch now. The interesting thing about TikTok, which I'm using more and more, is that all you have to do is watch a little bit of one snippet of a Soprano scene, and then all of a sudden you're getting it there. So I don't yeah. even have to go to my TV. It's right on my phone. My, my final idea is is, is about this. Uh, I worked at the Academy of Motion Pictures, and the Academy was formed by people who were rejecting the studios. Hmm. It was formed in part by United Artist people, which was Charlie Chaplin and uh, Douglas Fairbanks, who were the big stars of the day, mm-hmm. who also felt like they were getting ripped off by the studios, mm-hmm. so they built their own. Mm-hmm. And um, AI can work both ways. Zasloff doesn't know how to work at AI. Mm-hmm. Who does? It's the working people. Mm-hmm. So, sure, I would think in this digital age... Maybe the studios don't really realize what's possible in the future mm-hmm. for these very creative and now pissed off people mm-hmm. to create. 
Well, that'd be interesting. I mean, I think great ideas often come out of times like this. Right. It, it, and is that one of the things that you uh, uh, coach your, your people about? Um, well, in a general sense, I think I would say that if I work with a client who's showing a lot of resistance to an endeavor or a relationship, that they continue to bang their heads again, I might point that out. I'm, the metaphor I use often is that sometimes we can be a wind-up doll, and it's great when we're going, but then you hit a wall. And uh, it, you have to really sort of zoom out sometimes to realize, oh, can I just turn this thing? Is this not the problem? Because also that also relates to the idea of giving up or quitting, as if that's a horrible thing. I can't quit this relationship. I'm going to make it work. I can't quit this job. I don't want to give them the satisfaction. Well, oftentimes, that's the, really the reason why we're unhappy. And so we should end it. Well, we'll talk about it in therapy and then, and then see. <laughs> Phil, thank you so much for being here. Uh, where can our friends uh, find your book? Okay, well, to, to learn more about me, you can Google Phil Stark Therapist. You can look at my website, which I designed myself. I also design websites. If you want to check that out, let me know. Uh, you can learn more about my therapy practice. I see clients from all over the state of California via telehealth. It's wonderful. Are you accepting new clients? Yes. Telehealth, is it an app? No, telehealth just refers to the practice of seeing somebody over uh, the computer. Okay. Yeah. So is it telehealth.com? No, no, no. Oh, it's just, it, that's, you, that's the overall yeah, it's, it's, umbrella. It's, 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 yeah. Uh, so you would go to my website if you just Google Phil Stark Therapist, and you will find links to all information about me as far as a therapist and my writing and my history. And then also find a link to my wonderful book, Dude, Where's My Cartharsis, <laughs> which I would love for you, anybody listening to go out and buy and read and contact me and say, I, something about this helped me. It was wonderful. Um, is there an audio version of this? No. Oh. Should there be? I have really bad ADD. I haven't read a book in years. I wonder if I could uh, do, well, I should do that. I should do an audio book version, yeah. Do you have the patience to read out loud for a month? Maybe I can uh, get AI to do it. <gasps> you could. <laughs> Whose voice would you use? Oh my God, I, I, I don't Snoop know. Snoop Dogg? <laughs> it would have to be something uh, comforting, classy, yet friendly and, and warm. Comforting? So Mr. Rogers, classy, classy, like Clark Gable. Almost James Mason. Oh, yeah. Friendly and warm. Friendly and warm. Um, okay. But that's intriguing. You know, it was fun producing the book and writing it, and I put it up on Amazon myself, print on demand, designed it all myself. It was wonderful doing it on my own. And so now I'm realizing, oh, that's a cool project. I can look into an audiobook version. The, 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 there's many bonuses of, of on-demand publishing. I've done it myself. One of them is... No notes from anybody else. Screw them. Yeah, Who cares? Right. Screw you. Totally. Also, why do you deserve any of the money? They're coming to me yep. because of my name right. and my idea and interviews that I do. Mm -hmm. Is that how you feel about this book, Oh, absolutely. Too? I mean, look, I, I approached this book the same way I, I, I would have a, a screenplay at first. I developed a pitch. I worked my contacts. I got an agent at William Morris in New York. I thought, I'm big time. This is great. I got some more notes. They sent it out. Nobody liked it. And then six months later, I'm like, why the fuck am I not writing this book right now? Right. So I wrote it, put it up on Amazon, uh, print on demand. I get, what, 60, 70% of the, of the money. Uh, it's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So all people need to do is, is Google Phil Stark, mm -hmm. kind of like Tony Stark. Yeah, therapist or writer. Okay. Uh, or dude, where's my car? That mm -hmm. Usually safe bet to return my name somehow. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, awesome. 
again, thank you so much for being here. And thanks you for having me. I love your podcast. I love what you're doing. Uh, you. I can't wait to hear this episode and future ones. Well, right on. And you will. Thank you. How great was Phil? You know who we'd get high with and lose our car to and write a script starring Abe Vigoda? Our Patreons. Well, AI Abe Vigoda. When you stoke us, you're saying, Tony, Jordan, like Phil, we love the show, but we're too shy to ask to be a guest. So, here's a bunch of money. Shout out to our Patreons, Nancy Rahman, Sean Atlow, Matt Mills, Sean Wallace, Greg and Molly, Jamie Taylor, Mark Johnson, Kira Ann, Barney Grinke, Ben Welsh, Jen Adams, Trevor Wilson, Bree Wild, Dougie Gyro, Christina Up North, Robin Carey, Adam Shorn, Ben from Down Under, Chris from the ATX, Gregor, and a, what, what? A new Patreon, and his name is Phil Stark, what? Thank you. To be a Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash here in LA and give till it hurts. Want to support us, but your OnlyFans check just hasn't cleared yet? You can still help. Post your favorite episode on your Facebook. Get crazy and post two. Oh my God. Mark Zuckerberg's head would just explode. Post two. Post two. Tweet something nice about us. Anytime you see me tweet about an episode, just retweet it. Bloop. That's all you got to do. And for God's sake, tell your friends. Tell them how Here in L.A. is spelled, and it's on Apple Podcasts, and Google, and Amazon, and Spotify, and blah, 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 blah. Here in L.A. is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and a man who's never lost his car, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Orgone and Jordan Katz. Special thanks to Cindy for creating the logo, Jen for inspiring this, and writers, actors, creators, and all the good people who make movie and TV, especially those who make us laugh, Thank, thank you, you, you Patriots. Patriots.